Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Correct. Okay, great. <laughs> I don't know why I said correct, but yes, 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 yes we can. <laughs> okay, excellent. Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountain, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills into shadow. This is my brother, my captain, my podcast. How did it come to this? I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is the Red Book of the West March. Usually we go through the Lord of the Rings films one scene at a time, but these Patreon episodes are going to be an altogether different beast. We want to use these exclusive episodes in two ways. First, and most importantly, to explore the world of Tolkien beyond the confines of the visual adaptations we usually focus on, and then also to discuss different topics that extend beyond the realms of Middle-earth. Today, we'll discuss history, how we understand it, how we talk about it, and where Tolkien comes down on those two issues in his work in the Legendarium all with a very special guest. But first, our spoiler warning. Oh. Well, the ring- Do it. Sorry, got fuck. This. Damn it. I knew I was going to do one of them. <sighs> our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and absolutely not ever the Hobbit films. All of that handled. Um, I would like to introduce our very, very special guest for the episode, someone we've been trying to get for uh, an unconscionably long period of time um, and a very old... I was going to try and do Bilbo Baggins voice there, but then I like... No, it wasn't Bilbo. Fuck. I was going to do try and try and do Ian McKellen Gandalf voice there and then chicken out of it. But a very old <laughs> friend of mine, Wolf. Um, Wolf, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, tell us about yourself and your relationship to this utterly insane topic. <laughs> So my name is Wilfred Kugorak Zabel. I am, uh, I would say, terminally a Tolkien fan. Uh, (laughs) I'm from the village of Norvik, Alaska, and I think I've known M for like, I don't know, six or seven years now through the the internet. Um, And my relationship to Tolkien sort of predates my relationship to history uh, in that I... It was really by listening to uh, Tolkien. Po- Hold on, let me let me take another running start of that. Um, <laughs> so I got into Tolkien very young. My my dad would read me the books, and then I would um, uh, be dissatisfied with the pace he was moving at, and would read more of them myself. <laughs> uh, And they were, like, really one of the few fantasy series that I um, kind of, uh, on the one hand, was allowed to read. I grew up in a very evangelical uh, household. And also, on the other hand, just nothing quite grabbed my attention as much. I was 
also a big fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, but that doesn't really have quite the staying power that the Legendarium does. Um, and yeah, and so uh, around like middle school, maybe, I made two very big decisions which altered the course of my life forever. Uh, one was I got a Tumblr, and two was I started listening to these, um, they were sort of like a proto-podcast uh, that... Professor, I think his name was Corey Olson. Yeah. Out of like the University of or Washington College, I think it was in in Maryland, maybe. Yeah. Uh, he he used to uh, he started by uploading uh, recordings of his uh, lectures on Tolkien, uh, and then moved into more recognizable podcasting realms, and I just devoured them. It was my first real uh, encounter, I would say, with literary criticism. Uh, and I couldn't get enough of it. Uh, I ended up like, I would, I would listen for hours and hours a day while I played Minecraft usually. <laughs> um, and like, I ended up, uh, like teaching myself very basic middle English through his podcast and nice. just absolutely became obsessed. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, a few years later I went to college and studied, um, uh, comparative literature and near Eastern studies, which is not exactly accurate. My, I focused on uh, Inuit and Yiddish poetry, basically, and their Amazing. relationships to, to, to history and time, I guess, is what I would describe my thesis as being on. Um, and so in, that, in the course of that, while I didn't have so much formal training in historiography explicitly, uh, a lot of what I was doing was thinking about, uh, especially, you know, Hegelianism and Benjamin and their conceptions of time and history. Um, and of course, all through, throughout this, uh, I often think back to, uh, Tolkien's legendarium and his own approach to history. And, um, as I've become more and more politically aware, this has been a more and more fraught process, I think, <laughs> naturally. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, we'll get, we'll get more into that. Um, but now I am, uh, I'm at, uh, Oxford studying linguistics. Um, and, and I promise it's not just because of the Tolkien thing. Um, <laughs> it would be reasonable if it was though. <laughs> yeah, it is, it, it, it is maybe the biggest, now that I've been here about six months, I think it, it is the biggest positive of studying linguistics here is that Tolkien also did, but it wasn't why I chose to do it. Um, yeah. And so I, that's. That's that's me, I guess. Amazing. So I guess like some of the we don't often have guests, but I, I feel like every time we do get guests on, we have to ask like some of the hokey questions. So like mm -hmm. favorite characters from well, we'll do this one one by one. So like, <laughs> what's your favorite okay. Lord of the Rings character like and why? OK, um, well, I guess I'll I'll do the hokey guest answer and give you two instead. Nice. Uh, I would say favorite Lord of the Rings character probably. Um, oh, I don't know. Probably Elrond. I think. Nice. I just I don't know. That's a good one. I don't really know why. I think when I was younger, I uh, fixed on to Hugo Weaving, like in some sort <laughs> of uh, like deeply deranged way. I never even saw the matrix. It was just as Elrond. <laughs> um, 
Uh, and that has stuck with me, I would say. Like, that is still, I am still um, the world's one and only weaving head. Uh, but my favorite, um, my favorite legendarium character, if I can, if I can wiggle around the question yes. a little bit, yes. is uh, the worst possible answer, and that is Feanor. I Amazing. just, uh, I can't get enough of the, like, you know, tragic, anti-hero, misguided guy kind of thing. Uh, I think the worst elements of who I am as a person, I, like, came to recognize in Feanor in, like, middle school when I first read The Silmarillion. And I I have – I it's been a process of recovery ever since. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of uh, of describing Feanorian apologists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Um, yeah, okay, cool. So I think, um, Manu, pending any other hokey questions from you – um, I th- uh, do I have any? Oh, I'm not quick on the draw yeah. here. Uh, um, no, let's skip it. I'll, if I come up with a hokey question, I'll shoot we'll, it like, out randomly. Intersperse it, yeah, just to throw you off. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Um, so I'm glad then that we've gotten onto this topic of the Silmarillion because um, certainly as far as I um, think about the this like complex and incredibly frustrating topic of history and the legendarium it's hard not to to kind of default to talking about the silmarillion in particular um and and Feanor's part in that as well which will be um a fun thing when we get to that but, but i guess like one of the things that we should start off with for everybody who um does not have um any sort of academic training or academic background in the study of history is like talking about what that means and i and i think this will be kind of fun because like you will like the 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 position you're coming or the angle you're coming at um is far closer to the angle that that J.R.R. Tolkien would have come from um, mm-hmm. for it um as opposed to me which is like very kind of rigid by the checklist um asshole mm-hmm. historian approach <laughs> um so um I'll, I'll go ahead and and do a little quick kind of intro to the discussion of like what history is and then I will cede the floor so that you can correct all of the like um all of the the stodgy historians um approaches to it here um but yeah so 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 history i think as a as a topic is is one of these interesting things because um you know historians love making it mean everything um everything falls under our purview um so long so far as we concern are concerned and so long as our funding applications are concerned um everything (laughs) is history um but for for a lot of people um really your only kind of interactions with like history as an academic study come in um in in grade school and primary education um and then through pop history um podcasts books uh history channel documentaries if they still do those um (laughs) historical fiction um and and these are kind of distinct things. Um, one definitely influences the other, but the the, the concept of history um, and and the academic study of history are are two things that I think warrant some separation. Um, so whereas history is the sort of um, uh, stacking, I guess, of stories that that make up um, all that has come before um, in in the sort of recorded historical record, the academic study of history um, goes one step further from just merely archiving what the the sort of facts of history are into asking questions of um, how do we know this history? Why do we know that this is true? How do we tell these stories? Um, Who gets to tell them? Um, I I was doing a a kind of lecture talk thing at a local 
um, uh, museum a couple weeks ago. And, and I was kind of going through like, okay, so when we talk about like the history of women and work, um, you know, what do we talk about and who gets to write these stories? And I was sitting there, you know, looking out at uh, largely an audience of of women from Dundee who who remembered like quite viscerally the strike I was talking about. I was going, oh man, it is really surprising how like similar the kind of questions of like who... I, again, to quote Hamilton, which I hate doing, but it really does <laughs> succinctly do it, which is like, who lives, who dies, who tells the story? Um, mm -hmm. And like how common that is, especially for like people on the political left, trade unionists, this argument over who gets to to dominate the narrative, who gets to decide what the narrative is. Th this, These are all the questions of, of academic uh, history, of, of academic historians. Um, and, and the study of those ways of looking at history. Um, so whether we take a sort of from above approach, looking at the kings and queens and aristocrats and, and barons who um, make certain decisions um, to uh, the, the the study of history from below, you know, my, my man E.P. Thompson, um, looking at the peasants and the bump in proletariat and the proletariat and how um, women or, or children even um, have, have lived, have existed, um, you know, in, in the days of your, um, that study is called historiography. It's, it's this, the study of history and how history is made. So as we get into, um, this discussion more, uh, just for our, our dear listeners, um, <laughs> there is a, there is a distinction between this. There's history, which is the, the kind of sum total of, of the historical record. And then there's historiography, mm -hmm. which is these questions about how these things are studied. Um, mm -hmm. so for people who are trained in, in academic, history you you learn certain things about like archives about who historians are about what questions you should ask and when and why um and it's all very broad you know uh, you can be a quote unquote historian and study anything from environmental history to economic mm -hmm. history to like me women's history um and it's all very broad um but for most other academic disciplines certainly in in, in the humanities but although increasingly so in, in the sciences um there is a a, a level of historical investigation that goes into that work um, just inevitably um, that is not quite the same as academic history. And, and so for like ling linguists, the, the, the development of language, um, which is mm -hmm. something that Tolkien <laughs> focused on in particular, is, is <laughs> such a crucial part of um, their study. And I guess Wolf, mm -hmm. I'll just like throw to you here on like what, uh, how history kind of factors into to your study. Yeah, um, so I guess, Sorry, brain fart there for a second. Um, uh, I guess thinking about the distinction between uh, history and historiography, I kind of like to think of as like the distinction between studying food and studying cookbooks. Um, <laughs> I like that. That is um, sort of the approach I like to think about this in. Um, the I mean, not to get very uh, rote sloganeering, but the difference between theory and praxis uh, is very relevant, I think, mm. in in how one approaches um, this kind of meta-analysis of their own work. Um, yeah, and as for how... So I, I, my background is very much not in linguistics, so I, I'll be careful in how much I, I state outright um, as, uh, you know, making broad declarative statements. Um, Though maybe I should, I'd be a better pop historian. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, but yeah, the so linguistics as a field largely comes from historical linguistics. We've got uh, the Brothers Grimm 
studying um, the Germanic languages and folk tales and this kind of thing. Um, and the study of language really begins with this kind of comparative linguistics um, with the very early, uh, I think, later half of the 19th century realization that Sanskrit was related to the European languages. And then before that, the realization that the European languages were themselves related. Um, and then beginning to study how languages change and what that means and what that sort of implies about common origins and this kind of thing. Um, and this is very when – we, when we look back at that stage of the development of linguistics as a field, uh, we can see where Tolkien himself draws a lot of his uh, ideas from, I think. His, his – not so much his ideas in the legendarium per se, but the kind of uh, – his, his historiography – um, he's drawing from things like the Brothers Grimm or the Poetic Edda, which are these, hold on, I might be mixing up the Poetic Edda with the Finnish, the, the Finnish version of the Poetic Edda. I'm sorry <laughs> to any Finnish listeners. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, this kind of examination of both folk tales and folk language and the, um, the kind of construction of identity around that. Because Tolkien is, and we'll get into this more later, I think, very much a a romantic in the capital <laughs> R sense, uh, and I suppose in the lowercase r sense. Um, <laughs> but uh, he he's very much interested, though I think he would chafe at the implication, uh, with these ideas of people and nation and belonging. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's interested, I mean... His his own description of the legendarium at one point was to uh, was an effort to create a a, a mythos for England, um, mm -hmm. which largely <laughs> lacks such a thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, and linguistics we we kind of uh, have moved away from it now in most of our. I, I think we like many of the uh disciplines which sit on the border of the social sciences and the humanities uh really like to wield the sciences part of social sciences <laughs> like a uh, like a brand mm. um we uh yeah there's a lot more analytical ph philosophical uh, m a lot more of my work looks like writing python code than um <laughs> than anything tolkien would have done i think but still in the bones there is this connection between uh, the earliest part of historical linguistics and the other parts of the humanities, which are largely concerned with where people and ideas come from and material Amazing. conditions. I'm so tickled by you saying it's closer to to writing Python code than than anything else. <laughs> it's, um, I feel like that is so totally. I mean, not to not to shit all over social sciences or whatever, but like it's so totally my experience of the academy is all the social scientists being like, yeah, see, um, we have STEM creds. Um, uh -huh. so, so yeah, marketability. It's fair. <laughs> Um, no, awesome, great. So, so there's there's so much in here, and I think um, I I was gonna like hold off on this, mm -hmm. but I'm not because I love controversy, and also I want to put Manu <laughs> against the wall like right away. Um, so one of the things that I kind of want to like hit out at really quickly in this is like 
by and large not going to be addressing the peter jackson movies in in Mm -hmm. this episode like this is all tolkien related but but i think actually um there is a really interesting kind of um view on history um Mm -hmm. on how history is told in peter jackson's films and like you know it starts with you know galadriel uh crowding herself the best and nicest girl there ever was to Mm -hmm. um you know frodo literally closing the book and then sam closing the book and then five other people closing the book (laughs) because god knows we have to have a million uh endings to this um and so i guess like i'm kind of going to throw you maybe something of a curveball here and ask like um, you know, for someone who's who's kind of um, interest in Tolkien is is so much on the Tolkien side rather than like the the kind of Lord of the not Lord of the Rings, but like the the movie side of things. Like, mm-hmm. how do you feel about that kind of approach in the movies? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, I used to have a really hot take about this that I don't quite remember, uh, <laughs> but I'll try and access it again. Um, yeah, I think. As you say, the movies are very interesting in their approach to history. Um, and I think it's it's very interesting to look at them as uh, a product of their time. I mean, obviously a product of their time. But specifically with the way they look at history, the way they look at violence, and their position relative to the 2000s and American Empire. Um, I think... You can see a lot in the and I to be clear, uh, let me let me put this out there. Uh, I am a big fan of the Jackson films. I I do greatly enjoy them, <laughs> uh, uh, which is why I think I like picking them apart so much. Yes. But I think you can see a lot in their hero. They they endorse a kind of heroic narrative of history that Tolkien obviously his ideas I think are related to, but are but they're distinct. Uh, In the movies, you have very much um, a more conflict-driven kind of uh, more classically great man uh, view of a struggle between good and evil for the future, which Mm -hmm. is not so much, I don't think, what Tolkien um, espouses precisely. I think uh, there is obviously the struggle between good and evil in Tolkien. Uh, and later, I think I might uh, bring up some of the things he says in in his non-fictional uh, work about that. But um, the, the movies themselves are, I think, much more concerned with figures like... Uh, okay, this is going to be deranged. Uh, the movies po- the movies paint Aragorn the same way that Hegel points paints Napoleon. Amazing! It is uh, world great, history great. on horseback. Um, <laughs> he is the sort of spirit of the age, um, and I think there there is an element to which the movies embrace a little bit more of a reactionary, not in the political sense, but in the uh, sort of reactionary versus progressive as meaning does history progress and is it better to literally turn back the clock kind of views of history uh, than Tolkien does. Mm -hmm. Though um, Tolkien certainly flirts with it a lot, especially in his essays. Um, But the the movies are much less prone to resignation, I think. They're much more um, 
invested in in the uh, in the fact of change rather than the Tolkien's approach, which is all hope kind of being run through with futility, and that's okay. Um, and I think mostly about the, especially I think the second movie, um, uh, The Two Towers, which is in my memory like 90% fight scenes. Um, <laughs> uh, there, there is a lot of, I think he gets the most explicit there with the counterposing of um, the old, for or not the old forest, sorry, Fangorn and uh, Isengard, uh, which is something that Tolkien also talks about explicitly and brings up again in The Scouring of the Shire, but it's industrialization. It's, it's this uh, capital P progress that Tolkien objects to so severely. Um, but Tolkien also writes Fangorn in as itself a remnant. Uh, and there, there are the Entwives, and so much has already been lost. Isengard is not... Isengard and the destruction of Fangorn are not these new innovations breaking in, but rather the continuation and culmination of a progress uh, process which has been in progress uh, literally since time immemorial. Mm. Whereas the movies posit everything as kind of happening now, yeah. um, which is, I think, a little bit, I mean, it's more hopeful. It's probably a better movie that way, uh, <laughs> but it's a much more um, kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say like violent philosophy because that's not exactly what I mean, but it's a philosophy much more concerned with uh, fighting change than um, accepting change. Yeah. And I think, um, I think Tolkien himself kind of has a problem with this. Tolkien isn't entirely coherent or consistent in his view on change. Mm -hmm. He writes a lot about, um, about progress. And here I'll, I'll just pull out the quote from Mythopoeia I was reading earlier, nice. which is, uh, and Mythopoeia, uh, for those who might not know, is a poem Tolkien writes uh, I don't really remember when, about the process of myth-making or mythopoeia, uh, spelled in the least intuitive way you can imagine. Uh, but towards the end of the poem, Tolkien says explicitly, I will, not, I will not walk with your progressive apes. Before them gapes the dark pit to which their progress tends. And this kind of thing, this <laughs> much more, I mean, explicitly reactionary, and the rest of the poem is also very... Um, very much about the this anti-enlightenment um, mood. Uh, the, the, it, I don't think it. he really manages to bring that across in his fiction quite as well. His fiction mm. is much more concerned with resignation, whereas his, his nonfiction, while never really veering into any calls for political action or a different, a different approach to progress, uh, is much more, he's much crankier um, yeah. <laughs> in his nonfiction. So the, uh, this is a kind of good pivot here. Um, I, like Manu, I think we'll put you against the wall here as both like um, a new student of history, um, recent uh, indoctrinator to the cult, <laughs> um, and also a um, person who is actually uh, alive and conscious, conscious uh, at the, the kind of um, the presentation of the, the original trilogy. Um, so what, what are your vibes? What are your thoughts here? 
Yeah, I know Wolf kind of walked walked back talking about it being a product of its time, the Lord of the Rings films, just because that is kind of true for everything. Um, but I do think that's like actually kind of at the heart of it, like because there is this like Fukuyamaist approach mm-hmm. to the Lord of the Rings in these films. Um, you say like history, like. Fukuyama posited the end of history being like the end of the Cold War and that, you know, 1990s as is. And then you kind of see a lot of American media move into this like post-ideological approach to things where like what came before and the power dynamics that exist don't really matter. And then things like change and hope just kind of become virtues unto themselves without any kind of like material backing to any of it um so and like i think about this a lot and maybe not say with lord of the rings but like every movie about the iraq war that has come out uh happy 20th mm-hmm. anniversary to the iraq war <laughs> oh, um like things like the hurt locker and like zero dark 30 i guess i'm just going to attack Catherine bigelow on this podcast <laughs> um but these are these are movies that are made about the iraq war and it's like the extent to their anti-war critique is uh, war sure is bad and fucked up, huh? Uh, And like, there's nothing like who's going to war? Why are the conditions this way? Who are these like non-white people that are at the fringes of the story? What is their role here? Um, And that's kind of how I think Lord of the Rings is. It's just, it doesn't have a sense of like the Lord of the Rings films, not the Lord of the Rings story here, but it doesn't have a sense of real ideology. Like you say, Aragorn's trying to return as king and reestablish the monarchy, but um, not to get all George R.R. R. Martin here, but what does that actually mean? Yeah. Um, all we know is that the way the movies phrase him is that he is the exile king um, and that he's basically like King Arthur or Link or Luke Skywalker. Pick whatever era mm-hmm. of... Um, classic hero you want and that the thing that we need to have him do is win um and Mm -hmm. he does and that's kind of it and literally the moment he gets the crown put on his head five seconds later we never see aragorn again in the movies (laughs) ideal Um, so and i know emily loves that choice and she's already a huge fan of him disappearing for 40 minutes in the middle of return of the king as is um so it's and honestly like i think the first time i read lord of the rings i didn't think of it any differently than i did when I watched the movies, it was when I really started talking to Emily and other people that I'm like, oh yeah, there is a little messier history here, both in the retelling of the story, but also in terms of like Galadriel and the mm-hmm. elves and everything that happened in the previous two ages. And I they're was like just colonial. thinking the same thing. Um, and it just like, like, like there is a point of view difference between the Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings books and movies. And we've talked about this. Um, and that's something I was kind of okay with. I have to deal this a lot with my A Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones stuff, mm-hmm. not from a historical standpoint, but those books are told from a point of view. Like, mm-hmm. um, so you're in someone's head. So when Melisandre gives birth to a shadow baby out of her uterus, <laughs> we only have what Davos thinks in his mind, mm-hmm. like in terms of what happened there. We don't have an objective camera. Mm-hmm. Like this is what it would be if anyone else saw it kind of thing. Yeah. Um. So that doesn't bother me as much, but it's that Galadriel point of view that like, the elves are just treated as an inherent good with zero history before it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I get into that Fukuyama style end of history. Cause if you've mm-hmm. ended history, then nothing that happens before it really matters into current and future projections or estimations. Um, and that's kind of where there, you get a sense that stuff happened in middle earth, mm-hmm. but you don't get a sense that 
those factors are still kind of informing what's happening now, except mm-hmm. maybe the fact that the elves are leaving Middle Earth. So this mm-hmm. is another good thing, because I, before we pivot like fully to the, I keep saying pivot, I'm so sorry, before we kind of turn <laughs> more fully to, to the books, I like I, I kind of want to hit this one other kind of question on the the movies. And again, like Manu, mm-hmm. as a recent um, student of history, but also someone who watched the movies in the theaters when they came out as a teenager, like, do you feel like... Um, you know, since kind of starting to um, engage more with like history as a kind of like a, 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 an activity that one does instead of just like a dusty old fucking shitty uh, U.S. public school textbook. Um, do you feel like your kind of take on um, the, the movies has like changed substantially? And then also so we can segue neatly into the books, like, do you feel like you're kind of view on how the the story is told in the books has changed uh yes um i would say yes to both i think with the movies um i'm one of those people who like i crystallize those first few experiences with something i love like with a movie like the lord of the rings so like at some level even when i'm watching it now in 2023 i am like experiencing it like it was 20 like I was in 2000, 2001, whatever it was. Um, so I don't always think about the same things like I would now. Um, but I think one thing our podcast has done is I think more about the ideology behind everything involved with these movies and honestly with every aspect of my life at this <laughs> point. Um, so it's just like I was not thinking about the Lord of the Rings films prior to 2015 in any kind of real ideological sense. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that it came out like during my, I would say, radicalization, or at least when I actually dove into politics, because it is the Iraq war, it is mm-hmm. the war on terror. You're a brown man in America. Your politics changed radically during those times. Um, but I don't think I really had the tools or understanding to really appreciate that. And I've said on this podcast, too, that the first couple of times I tried reading The Lord of the Rings, I just did not like it. And my main complaint was, this isn't the movies. Where are the fucking action scenes? Why are we still in the Shire? Why is there a whole book without Legolas jumping on horses? What the fuck is this? And uh, now, and I think some of that is also because I, I became a somewhat smarter reader when I went through my whole Song of Ice and Fire radicalization, um, because those books took work themselves to like really grapple with all the things that are out there and the ideas Martin is playing with and the fact that it's not completed. I've had to keep thinking about it for, <laughs> uh, you know, over a decade now at this point. So uh, now returning to the books, I see the richness in the fact that this is a history that's passed down in some way, that the point of view can kind of meander outside of the like now and when of the story at any one point, just to tell you that Bill the Pony found his way home. Uh, it's like, Reading that the first time in 2004 as like an edgelord teen, I'm like, what the fuck is this? Um, but now I can understand that it's not just about the fact that Bill the Pony got home, but it's also in part telling you something about how this story is being told. And like, that's why I've gone from The Lord of the Rings is a good book that created my, that was the basis for my favorite movies of all time, has now become the films are still some of my favorites of all time, but now the book is also one of my favorite books of all time because now I'm, have a little bit more of that meta context for um, what the Lord of the Ring is beyond just a fantasy adventure story, which was kind of what I reduced it to as a younger person. Yeah, no, legit. And, and so that that kind of question of like how these stories are told, this is going to be my, my clunky segue into talking about the books. But like the Lord of the Rings as, as a book for anyone who hasn't read it is set up 
you don't dive right into the story. Um, you are presented with a couple um, pseudo-factual, I guess I'll call them, um, introductions, prefaces to to the, the story itself. Um, some of them are um, very, very plot relevant. So like, um, you know, uh, the history of the One Ring um, and, and the Rings of Power, uh, which uh, that is all we've ever heard on the topic and there was nothing ever produced about the Rings of Power ever again. So thankfully, <laughs> that's true. Um, but then there's also things that just seem like... Um, um, ephemera that, you know, if you're not in the habit of um, reading novels that have these kinds of setups, or if you don't know what you're getting into with The Lord of the Rings, um, reading an entire chapter about um, pipeweed, um, which seems to be just a fucking stupid name for tobacco, um, is a really strange um, way to get into what is meant to be one of the greatest fantasy novels of all time. And and this framing device um, is, is, a, is a constant... Um, kind of a constant um in in the rest of Tolkien's writing and certainly in the legendarium like the Silmarillion is has itself a place in in the kind of meta history of um of the legendarium it is not just a, a story as as written down by um J.R.R. Tolkien um or as as um as um, uh, collated by his son Christopher Tolkien, um, it is a it is legends and stories passed down that Tolkien either excavated or um, or did not excavate, excavate, failed to excavate. There are many references to th- to stories that we just <laughs> don't have, um, and and so there is this really keen sense of. Um, all the way throughout the legendarium of of this is meant to be varyingly real and playing with history and, and Tolkien himself went through a whole bunch of uh, of phases of um, how history played into to his 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 stories whether this was um, uh, the true history of the earth that he had translated himself or whether this was just a, a sort of convenient framing device he's kind of all over the place but I think that kind of question of um, how Tolkien and his stories um, decides to to employ that that framing device, I think, is a good kind of entry point into how he's thinking and and what he's doing with um, with history all, all throughout. Um, and so, I guess, Wolf, then, um, mm-hmm. uh, my question for you is, um, it, it, you know, in terms of um, you know the uh, Tolkien's long history of being like, yes, this was a thing. You know, these stories are a thing uh-huh. that, that I found, or these are uh, some guy went back in time, and these are mm-hmm. his stories. Um, I guess, mm-hmm. what like, what do you kind of make of that, and, and what does mm-hmm. that like tell you? I guess about what the fuck this man is thinking on on all of this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it is really interesting, right? Tolkien totally vacillates between. Uh, going full, yeah, I found these golden tablets in the woods outside my house <laughs> to uh, kind of disavowing that. Um, and it is really, I think, fascinating to kind of try and dig into in, into the reasons behind that. Uh, one, one thing that when I was, I don't know, 14 and was first uh, thinking about books as as things which are produced – you know, kind of as a process and are not just fully just, you know, they don't spawn on Barnes and Noble shelves. Um, <laughs> I found out about, I think it's called The Long Road yeah. or or something along these lines. An early Tolkien story that was um, supposed to be kind of a meta, as I recall, uh, frame story for the entire Legendarium that uh, focuses on an Anglo-Saxon guy uh, basically just walking into proto Valinor um and receiving this uh this history basically as word of mouth um 
And that's something that Tolkien very much moves away from uh, and takes, I think, a harder and harder stance as his uh, project goes on against, as part of his stance against um, allegory, uh, which is a fight that now that he is fighting in absentia, I think a lot of his uh, readers on the right have have basically forced him to lose. I think mm-hmm. a lot of the reactionary reading of Tolkien is reading him as allegory. Uh, when there is so much they could seize on there if they were reading him otherwise. Yeah. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but yes, I think it's an effort to at once kind of validate it as a creative project. And I think it's something that he uh, leans into more. And he writes about this in On Fairy Stories. Let me see if I can pull up the quote. But his uh, sort of full-throated defense of escapism, mm-hmm. um, he's he's seeing the role of fantasy change in his mind, not only – whereas in the beginning he's writing as this is a sort of mythic origin for British people. Um, towards the end, he's more universal, I suppose, about yeah. it, though – Though I, I, using such a um, an enlightenment phrase, I think might annoy him. <laughs> but um, uh, oh, let me find this. Yeah, he in um, in on fairy stories when he's discussing the uh, the escapist nature of fantasy, he he says. And if we leave aside for a moment fantasy, I do not think that the reader or the maker of fairy stories need even be ashamed of the escape of archaism, of preferring not dragons, but horses, castles, sailing ships, bows, and arrows, not only elves, but knights and kings and priests. For it is, after all, possible for a rational man, after reflection, to arrive at the condemnation, implicit at least, in the mere silence of, quote, escapist literature, of progressive things like factories or the machine guns and bombs that appear to be their most natural and inevitable, dare we say, inexorable products. Uh, here, I think, in this quote, Tolkien is fully flirting again with reaction, but I think we can also read in it part of his reasoning for moving away from the more explicitly sort of historical fiction elements of his work um, because historical fiction is just less escapist. There, it's it's tied still, I think, in a way that is perhaps corrupting in Tolkien's mind to the, to the real world. And though one might prefer knights and horses as well as dragons and elves, the presence of real places and this claim to real history is one that, especially when he's writing on fairy stories, I think in the 30s, is going to be... Hold on. Let me double check that claim. I don't want to get yelled at. Um, <laughs> I think you're right. I uh, think you are. Um, yeah, 1939. Just, uh, <laughs> just under the wire. Um, but uh, <laughs> published by the University of St. Andrews for the first time. Yeah, strangely. Um, uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, so he's... The historical fiction, and we can get (laughs) – one could have an entire podcast about things like uh, alt history and Henry Turtledove and all of that and political (laughs) nature. But uh, I think by the time Tolkien's writing on fairy stories, it's clear that escapism 
can either be bound in its political project. He can't make this sort of romantic nationalist myth without more explicitly endorsing the um, less savory elements of romantic nationalism. By Mm -hmm. then, Tolkien would already have uh, received a letter from the Nazis asking for permission to publish the, uh, the Hobbit in German uh, and heaping embarrassing praise on it. As I Mm. recall, Um, he's already having to face somewhat his uh, uncomfortable bedfellows. And I think we can read in this something of a turn away from that though. As far as I know, he never puts it explicitly in these terms. Um, But a reaction not only against the present world, but against the political. Um, if I knew a little bit more about Thomas Mann, I think there would be a connection there. But um, <laughs> Yes, the, that's one for uh, another day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, he's, he's essentially, I think, doing a little bit of, of self-defense. Um, he, his project, he lodges firmly in the realm of the Fae and of the otherworldly and the elements of it, which do speak to real life romanticism and escapism. He puts firmly in fairy story terms. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's largely a very clever move conscious or no to avoid the overt politicization that would be inevitable. Had he continued on making essentially a, you know, a, a mythological history of, of England. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 So, so this is good. This gets us into the, like the, this question of romanticism, right? Because like mm-hmm. this, this kind of, no, I want, I don't want to say backwards as in like a, a moral assessment there, but like, like looking backwards, this, this kind of historical mm-hmm. turn towards, um, uh, towards the archaic is not, is mm-hmm. not necessarily something that exists purely in, in, in the world of right wing politics. Um, mm-hmm. the, the romantic poets, certainly the British romantic poets, Keats, Shelley, mm-hmm. um, these are, these are left wing, um, um, well, more or less left wing, uh, mm-hmm. figures. I mean, I mean, Shelley is an, anarchist and we'll mm-hmm. forgive him for that um but it is not something that is like inherently right wing um mm-hmm. and so the fact of tolkien you know having this sort of it is not his romanticism that makes tolkien mm-hmm. right wing it is it is kind of all of the other things of, about um, mm-hmm. his writing that that put him there but mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things that um i, I guess um merits some investigation and and this is also for anybody who's doing like a, mm-hmm. a, a bingo card at home um, I'm going to use my favorite character of all time um, Denethor to, to get into this <laughs> which is like you know the, this kind of clash of like the 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 romantic uh-huh. with like the the kind of real politic or the, the kind of utilitarian mm-hmm. is I think in no better way um, um, enumerated in um, mm-hmm. Tolkien's writing than through this kind of proxy war between Denethor and, and Aragorn and where mm-hmm. Denethor is, um, and uh, I, I should also note that Tolkien later regretted the way that he portrayed um, Denethor, um, but, but you know, where Tolkien is sort of committed to um, uh, uh, or sorry, where Denethor is sort of committed to this like very realpolitik, almost almost modern approach to, to politics and, and to rulership. Mm-hmm. Um, Aragorn as this kind of romantic hero is, is placed in opposition to 
to him through this sort of like vessel of um, of Gandalf, who's really just doing Aragorn's weird bidding. Mm-hmm. Um, but we see so much here, and I think like in especially like Tolkien's later con- like writings on on how he portrayed Denethor and his kind of expressed mm-hmm. regrets over that, we get the sense of like there was a real war. Um, waging for for Tolkien and intellectually about like which side is actually um right not or maybe not mm-hmm. right but which side like sort of doesn't deserve any any merit given to it and you know I think mm-hmm. in the in you know if we reach back into the Silmarillion and like the story of Feanor um and like mm-hmm. Feanor is like very much a a villain in the kind of like oh, thou art a villain sort of sense. Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily in this like antagonist sense, but like there's an enormous mm-hmm. amount of strange sympathy for Feanor in, in Tolkien's writing, even though Feanor mm-hmm. represents this kind of push against all things archaic, all things mm-hmm. um, uh, like romantic. Um, and, and I guess like I, I, I'm interested in us kind of getting more into the, mm-hmm. this question of like Tolkien's relationship to the romantic and the historical and mm-hmm. how he navigates those, especially when he's trying to deal with the the rise of Nazism. Ha ha, lol. Yeah, I think, and I think this, the question of Feanor and his, his sort of, his nature is almost a modernizing figure, right? He uh, he introduces what 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 are practically electric lights, telephones, and <laughs> I mean text. Um, he's 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 very much a, a modernizing figure, um, though. His interestingly, I think a lot of his reception is retrospective, and that then again we get into the question of the past. Um, but I, Tolkien has throughout his works and this is why earlier i said he isn't really consistent about his opposition to change a level of odd sympathy i think mm-hmm. towards the change bringer um never really agreement um uh but and i can't remember if this quote is from the silmarillion or if elrond says it at some point but um in in discussing change and this sort of thing, there is uh, someone at some point says to Quivianen, "There is no returning." Quivianen mm-hmm. uh, being the the semi mythical birthplace of the elves in in Tolkien's Legendarium, um, and that I think really, if anything, encapsulates the attitude toward history of specifically his fiction. Uh, that does it. There is a level of resignation and acceptance of the progressive nature of history. To in Tolkien's works, the there is no point in trying to turn back the clock. You can't. Br- the elves are leaving. Mm. Like it or not, they're gone. Uh, the ones that stay will eventually fade and become like pixies. Uh, <laughs> but they're they. They're out. The age of the elves has faded. Uh, there is no longer any great last alliance. Numenor is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, or almost gone, anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and this is, I think, Tolkien... And here I'll get up on my little Hegelian uh, soapbox... But I think Tolkien uh, suffers the fate that everyone who writes after Hegel does, which is he can't beat the Hegelian allegation. <laughs> to him, history is uh, history is progressive to Tolkien. 
he sees history moving and changing, and that's inevitable. That is the motive force uh, behind the Lord of the Rings. The, uh, I mean, look at the age system. The ages are literally this uh, almost word for word. Like they're, it's it's very much um, sort of Weltgeist in in yeah. Hegel. Um, but whereas Marx uh, turned Hegel on his head, uh, Tolkien gets kind of rolled on his back by Hegel, I think. <laughs> he, he sees that history is progressive and he balks at it. Yeah. Um, he's, he, he's horrified. He doesn't really want to change or even conceive of the possibility of changing the, the flow of history. Um, but, but he's horrified. He, one can almost look at it as a, an exact inversion of Benjamin's conception of history, which is that the historian, the angel of history looks backwards at all of the calamities which pile up behind it in horror. For Tolkien, Tolkien's angel of history looks forwards at all of the change and modernization and uh, terror that that brings to the reactionary mind and is is terrified of it. He, mm -hmm. he sees it as one great disaster compiling on itself, but he nevertheless admits that that's, that's the way it's going. Um, and I think that that is something that in his works brings up a lot of this conflict. Uh, Feanor is, uh, and here I will concede that Feanor did, Feanor was, I suppose, rather villainous. Um, <laughs> um, he, but he was sort of a tragic figure because he is falling in this kind of uh, almost mechanistic role. And to, uh, it, we've gone a long time without mentioning uh, the Garden of Eden and original sin. Yeah. <laughs> um, but th that is really what it all is. And I object to readings of Tolkien that are inherently, um, uh, oh, what's the word? He hated the uh, allegorical. Um, and once I, when I was reading when I was younger, my dad's copy of, uh, the fellowship and when Gandalf dies, he had written in pencil by the side Christ allegory. And I, that had made me so mad. Um, but there is of course, right. It's a very, if it's not intrinsically Christian and Catholic, it is very much, uh, his, his philosophy, I think very much is, and his philosophy is then reflected a few times alienated in the books. Um, and there is this element of, well, yeah, things are going to get worse. And well, yeah, things used to be better. There was the fall. And we can't really do anything about that, but wait for the second coming and try and escape from this creeping corruption however we can. And he, I don't think, ever really follows it, it through to its natural and sort of insidious conclusions politically, but he is very much um, in that same grain. I mean, and I guess what he does say about himself politically uh, is very telling and very sort of gets at the connection between libertarianism and fascism. Yep. But yep. Uh, uh, Tolkien also describes himself as an anarchist. Yeah, fucking um, crazy. Uh-huh. Uh, Though I think he makes disparaging reference to uh, bearded men with bombs and refers instead to basically homestead living. <laughs> um, and that kind of thing is it, – it, 
it's basically a, tied in intrinsically with the idea that thing there is that collective projects can't make things better. Yeah. Um, that action. Be, it's almost not quite. And I guess here, here I'll circle back around to bring in the distinction I made earlier between the movies and the books. Uh, for Tolkien, most action is futility. Yeah. Um, there is almost, but not quite, a moral distinction to be made between action and inaction, um, where most of the time, trying to make things better is is just foolish. Yes. Uh, and, of course, this is complicated because Tolkien is something of a heroic thinker. He's something of a uh, great man believer. Yeah. Um, and so he... Almost. He, he, he cannot quite commit either to nihilism, uh, in, in the human project or to, um, heroicism in the human project. And he ends up sort of stranded between, uh, determinism and everything else in a way that is, I think, maybe more deeply sad than any other theory of history that I'm very familiar with. It's very much, there's a lot of resignation and there's a lot of, uh, hope, which is of course, uh, only made possible through despair. Yes. And oh, yes. the movies on the other hand are like, nah, fuck that. It's 2001 and we're America and we can make things right by yeah. starting wars. <laughs> um, well, that, uh, like, this is so, cause I, I mean, this is, this is such a hobby horse of mine, but you know, um, you, we kind of referenced earlier the like comp the complexities of trying to like reconcile loving Tolkien mm -hmm. with being on the left, and and mm -hmm. one of you know my ongoing eternal like personal angst is trying to 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 reconcile being on the left and being a feminist with um, mm -hmm. with thinking that the 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 plot line the Aowen and Firebeer plot lines is just these fucking knees, and and I mm -hmm. think this idea of like you know hope springing only from despair and like. The, the idea of like inaction and, and the, the sort of moral distinction between inaction and action and in some mm -hmm. ways action almost being the better, not well almost always being the better position you know um mm -hmm. Faramir's decision in in Athelion is to not act to take um mm -hmm. Frodo and Sam back to to Athelion and and Eowyn's moment of 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 uh, at least in Tolkien's eyes of of her personal heroism is is her mm -hmm. inaction on following the men out to to Moran and and um mm -hmm. and her moment of revelation is her moment of um not acquiescing because that's so loaded, but like accepting that not mm -hmm. trying to go out and fight all of the time is the way, um, and is is the, mm -hmm. the sort of point of her happiness. And you know, you you compare, um, you know, the the last spot between Denethor and Faramir, where where Denethor mm -hmm. is like, we have to do these these things that are acts um, acts mm -hmm. that are actively sort of um, stopping the war from from coming to this premature close, um, mm -hmm. and Faramir basically being like, but. But that's not really noble, is it? Like, if I go ride mm -hmm. out to Osgiliath, that's not really noble. And and Denethor saying, well, but who cares? And and Faramir has to kind of mm -hmm. take that L um, while still sort of <laughs> maintaining that that moral superiority. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, in mm -hmm. in comparison, the the movies strip all of that out. Um, because mm -hmm. it it's very difficult. Um, to to kind of let that um let those two things sit in conflict if you're not really wholeheartedly committing to being mm -hmm. as like 
um, uh, as strange about that as as Tolkien uh-huh. was. Um, and I know Manu, you want to get in here, so I will. I'll let you uh, pull the trigger on that one. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's I, you guys are like way out kicking my coverage here because you're like well beyond me in the Tolkien knowledge. But I think the one thing I think about on those terms that I really wish made it into the movie, but perhaps wouldn't make sense given how they approach everything else, is the fact that Frodo does not take his sword into Mordor. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. to me, like someone who had the movies basically bur- like. I'll admit the movies have kind of overwritten what's in the books to some degree to me, just because that's where my love stemmed from. And every time I come across the fact that Frodo will not carry his uh, sword into Mordor, I'm like, fuck, that is so good. And that is <laughs> exactly everything that is trying to be said by the story. And I can't believe that's not anywhere in an extended edition scene or just even like a line of dialogue, like swords won't do us any good here. I, I know mm-hmm. Gandalf says something like that in Moria, but it's a wholly different context. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because our swords aren't big enough <laughs> uh, to fight the Balrog more than uh, swords have no more use like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something where I think that is, I wouldn't call that inaction, but it is definitely the opposite Mm -hmm. of how we would define action, especially Mm -hmm. in, say, this sense of the movies and action movies and all that. Um, But also in the same way that, you know, Faramir doesn't want, doesn't see the point in going back to try and take us Gilead for no reason um, or whatever it was in the books. I'm just kind of going off the movies here. (laughs) Um, But that's all I wanted to get. I think like that choice by Frodo is perhaps the most telling part of the books to me. Um, and that's the part that kind of destroys me and like, oh yeah, this is this is exactly perfect in terms of mm-hmm. storytelling and writing and character work. Like this is this is it. Yeah. Yeah. And if I can jump in here a little bit, um mm-hmm. I, I think one thing that's really interesting to look at here is the ring itself. Mm-hmm. Um I mean the 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 question of action versus inaction is very much kind of the question on the table, well, on the table, haha, uh, at the, um, uh, <laughs> at the council of, of Elrond, um, you know, the, the Boromir and, uh, and Denethor, if you'll forgive me, um, position, uh, which is to, to use the ring to kind of wield it as a, as a weapon. Um, and if, if I were really committed to doing a harebrained allegoristic take, uh, you could almost read the ring as like state power. <laughs> um, uh, and like the the belief that, you know, with with this, we could magnify our strength and achieve our ends. And then, of course, you get it, the, uh, the opposing view, which is, yeah, but then then we're just as bad as the other guys. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is a position held by J.R.R. Tolkien and the Democratic Party, weirdly enough. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, the, the, the sort of view of uh, action and especially collective or state action as being usually bad, uh, I think is really exemplified in the way the ring works. And then we have... Um, Tom Bombadil, uh, everyone's favorite guy, um, who is is not affected by the ring and lacks ambition, and specifically the ambition to dominate, which is basically the terms in which Tolkien casts the state, um, always for mm-hmm. the, more or less, except when we get into like theories of kingship. That's its own thing, but um, 
Tom Bombadil is this weird sort of reverse Fisher King with his little um, strange land. And uh, he doesn't really have any desire other than to be left alone for the most part. Um, and so the ring has no effect on him. He has no need of a state or a bureaucracy or whatever If you, in, in this reading. Um, yeah. And I think uh, to – nah, I, I've completely lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it happens. <laughs> I, I, I think one of the other things is, you know, in um, – and so as context for the listeners who haven't um, read The Silmarillion, um, one of the uh, key access points of the, the stories in The Silmarillion is the the Noldor decision to forsake Valinor in search of mm-hmm. um, of new realms um, to lord over in Middle-earth, in, in Beleriand and in Middle-earth. And, and um, you know, we've talked about on the podcast um, that kind of decision in, in, in sort of purely colonial terms um, and, and how like um you know galadriel's desire to go out and and dominate a, a realm of her own um to take up a dominion of her own um you know irrespective of the fact that like ostensibly within the kind of moral framework of of the silmarillion like feanor is doing dumb shit stuff and um all of the finwayans are doing dumb shit stuff and she really shouldn't follow but but her desire to sort of um dominate it is all the greater um and, and so we've talked about it in terms of that but i think there is this also kind of ultimate damnation of, of the Noldor um, by virtue of having, you know, regardless of whether or not they actually sign up to Fanor's critique of, of the Valar, um, by virtue of them taking any action on it at all, except for that kind of classic, classically English sort of curtain twitching and going, mm, well, that's a bit bit bad, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, they've they've taken that further step by by divorcing <laughs> themselves from from the Valar and from Paradise. And, and, and that, in as much as anything else that happens to them, is really Tolkien's damnation of them is uh, how dare mm-hmm. you it's not the fact that they're going to 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 dominate other people and like by all accounts um you know Galadriel and, and Celeborn are not exactly the nicest of people when they're they're hanging mm-hmm. out in Middle Earth um and and everything that fucks up in Beleriand including the, the sinking of Beleriand um mm-hmm. you know these things are like side effects but but in Tolkien's eyes in some ways you know the the real kind of crime is the fact of having left it all um and, and it is mm-hmm. this sort of original sin you know question of do you take um do, do you take the apple um and 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 how how does wanting more than is what is in your ken um how does that relate to this sort of where you stand morally and then i think also Mm -hmm. like how does that echo through history as well because you know Mm -hmm. we've got again characters like like faramir who who invoke Mm -hmm. numenor and and the fall of numenor as a um and and he does so in a really interesting way because he's like oh well the fall is bad and that's haunted me in in my dreams every night since Mm -hmm. i was a child but like also numenor was really good and we should kind of aim to get back to that and Mm -hmm. and that kind of echoing tension with like oh well the things that happened before were bad but we still need to like return with a v Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that's all the way throughout throughout all of this and it is one of these like really core tensions in Mm -hmm. how talks (laughs) engages Mm -hmm. with or doesn't engage with with history Mm -hmm. and i think um uh two things one i I, a vision has just come into my head of uh rather than galadriel as she's portrayed in the rings of power a better example would be just porting Shiv from Succession into the Second Age. <laughs> <of the Lord>. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and secondly, more seriously, uh, on the point of like the Kinslaying and the Flight of the Noldor, 
um, it's a really good point you make about the way it echoes through history. And it is itself also the echo of a previous mistake of the elves being brought to Valinor at all, which is, um, <laughs> in a way that I think very much fits with your description of the English tut-tutting, uh, the narrator voice in the Silmarillion goes, well, probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, the, the, the kind of, uh, way that previous sins with a, with a very big S, uh, and not a very cool one, uh, <laughs> echo through history and, and sort of compound on each other, uh, is, I think, a big part, a big part of the inherent tragedy of Tolkien, um, which is, I think, also the, the Legendarium, I think, very much is a tragedy more often than it's anything else. Mm -hmm. um, the which doesn't again, which doesn't really fit with the way Tolkien himself describes it. He, uh, I think, also in On Fairy Stories, um, describes a the the utility to use a, a very <laughs> ironic word of fantasy as being in illustrating the you catastrophe the good catastrophe which mm -hmm. breaks in against all hope and banishes tragedy and he explicitly says that fantasy differs from or i i don't know if he says exactly fantasy but he in more or less words uh says that fantasy differs from other forms of media in that tragedy is the highest form of art for everything else other than fantasy mm -hmm. which is Insane. is fascinating <laughs> um because my man these books are sad uh <laughs> yeah um but and and in a more sort of serious way the they are about being bound by our circumstances more than anything else i mean mm. uh what do we do what do we have to do but Oh, what's the Gandalf quote? This is like shared on a million Facebook oh, memes. How do I um, not know this? The we oh shit! It's like we 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 must do Manu, what, help with our time. Fuck! It's something Gandalf Tombola. All shaker. we have, all we have to decide is what yes. we do with the time that is given us. God there we damn. go. There we go. Wow! You didn't even need me for that. One. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and and sort of you know we the all of the characters are kind of bound by circumstance. Uh, by their, and I hear I'm pushing up my glasses, material conditions. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the, the, the nature of, the intertwined nature of tragedy and history is something which Tolkien writes excellently and seems almost to be unaware of. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. It, it's such the, it is such the, the problem with like interrogating this as well, because you're like, how much credit do you give him on these things? Or like, mm -hmm. how much did he like fall ass backwards into? Um, mm -hmm. And it's also like, it's so, it's one of these things that we're always talking about with this, where like, it, you know, Peter Jackson may or may not have been aware of like certain decisions he was making, but like he, whether he mm -hmm. was aware of it or not, he was making these like ideologically informed decisions. And, and J.R.R. Tolkien mm -hmm. is a shining example of this but like the, mm -hmm. the the kind of historical patterns that that Tolkien sort of sews into his 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 work um are all very um 
you know, they're they're very bound up in in in, in sort of a Christian or a Catholic mm-hmm. even mythos. And 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 I guess like Manu, I'm gonna kind of throw you under the bus here, but like you know, you you didn't come from a Christian background, and so like I'm I'm kind of wondering like for you that this kind of sense of like everything is bound up in tragedy. There's like you know you can't really fight anything. All of this action is 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 futile. Like like how does that kind of read to you coming from the background that you come from? I mean, honestly, I had to be told even after watching The Lord of the Rings that um, however you want to talk, it's like heavily informed by Tolkien's Mm -hmm. Catholicism and Christianity. Um, Like, I just, I don't see things through that way. Like, you have to be so obvious with um, like those kind of parallels for me to pick it up, or at least at this point in my life when it was 2001 through 2004. Mm -hmm. Um, In Metal Gear Solid 3, there's a character named Snake and Eva, and I never like put, oh, and Adam, and I never put it together that it was a Garden of Eden kind of thing that was happening between those characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I like to me, like the Lord of the Rings films read almost as agnostic um, because they themselves don't really mention like Eru Iluvatar or mm-hmm. how the elves were created or how any of the races were created. They only really start with the forging of the rings. Um, and I think this is where some of the scenes I love that Emily tends to be a little harder on in the movies are stuff like where Gandalf's talking about, um, you know, the ring went to Bilbo for a reason and then it went mm-hmm. to you for a reason. And to me, I read that as luck, like just the way history shaped out, the way the ring literally bounced, um, mm-hmm. literally just wound up in Bilbo's lap, as opposed to some kind of directed, predetermined force, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's the hand of God or something entirely different. Um, and there were parts, you know, like anytime a character is resurrected, like, mm-hmm. Jesus comes to mind. It's it's not like I'm I'm not that dumb. Um, so I know when Gandalf is coming back, there's definitely like a Jesus element to it. But like mm-hmm. I didn't know about the harrowing of hell, um, mm-hmm. which definitely deepens the like whole Gandalf Balrog stuff and how he mm-hmm. comes back. Um, so it's always been something I've like had to kind of learn after the fact. Um, but because of that, it almost doesn't ever really fit into how I view the Lord of the Rings movies even now, um, because I did crystallize them first as an agnostic piece of work. Um, mm-hmm. and then, and I think the films lend themselves to that reading more so than the books do. Um, and then with the knowledge, you know, from the meta conversation, from reading the books repeatedly, from mm-hmm. talking to Emily and now you will, now that stuff kind of seeps in there. But I think there is like, at least in the films, a completely agnostic reading. Um, mm-hmm. I think Gandalf's resurrection is the only thing that I would point to as there that's clearly a biblical reference or illusion mm-hmm. and yeah what's interesting about that is i think even the books are the the book's approach to sort of um in-universe religion is really interesting oh God, and i don't incredible. quite know right like the it's a very distant and maybe this is just a relic of tolkien being catholic and me having grown up protestant <laughs> but it um I, I mean, the, even the Valar, who are sort of not not even God, but his intercessors, um, are are so terribly distant. They're mm-hmm. they're mentioned um, uh, much to Jeff Bezos's lawyer's chagrin, very <laughs> sparingly. Um, uh, it's it's they religion in the world of um, of the Lord of the Rings is really really weird i this is one that i i don't have any intelligent or otherwise point to make about it i it just is one of the ones where i have to kind of throw up my hands and go 
something's happening here and I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I hate to, I, you know, I have to, I have to do it to y'all. I have to talk about a song of ice and fire and Martin <laughs> no. here, but, I, but that one, like the religion aspect of the storytelling is so much more like explicit. Like there mm-hmm. are explicit religions that different groups of people follow um, mm-hmm. and those religions conflict with each other. Sometimes there are religious wars over it. Um, they kill people over religious. So like religion is there, but it's also religion in a way I'm kind of like familiar with seeing it play out in our real mm-hmm. world. Um, and so that's why it's very easy for me to sink my teeth into the religious politics of A Song of Ice and Fire mm-hmm. and say, oh, I think Martin's building with some of the ideas maybe Tolkien had in his, but mm-hmm. no one in the story of the Lord of the Rings, which is all I've really read aside from The Hobbit, is really talking about faith or like mm-hmm. uh, like a uniform doctrine of beliefs mm-hmm. or, you know, competing doctrines of belief. Mm-hmm. Um, even now, I'm still, all I know about the religion is the name Eru Iluvatar, and he's kind of like the god. <laughs> um, but I still have it like, is there a church of Eru Iluvatar? No. Um, like, no. w- like, so th- I well, think that's part of why I'm able to maintain that agnostic reading of Lord of the Rings is because I haven't really seen applied religion. Uh-huh. I just know that some kind of divinity exists within the world building. Yeah, well, and, and, and that's the thing is like, it is it is very purposefully like absent. Mm-hmm. And, and Tolkien even writes in, in one of his letters basically being like, um, someone, I think it was one of his Jesuit pals was like, where are all the churches, man? What the fuck? Like, you're, <laughs> you're on side. What's going on here? Um, and Tolkien basically went back and said, no, no, like, I very specifically didn't include churches and I didn't include, like, a, an organized practice religion. And and he didn't really fully elaborate on it, his motivations for that, except for in these kind of wishy-washy terms where he's trying to, like, appease a, a priest and, and, and well, I was going to say we've all been there, but we haven't. Um, but, but, you know, uh, we can all imagine that. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think that it is this kind of interesting thing where, like, the organized religion is kind of absent. I feel like in part, and this is mostly me just spitballing here, but because this is a world absent the Reformation. And it's so hard mm-hmm. to imagine, like, the the modern world. Um, you know, it's easy to mm-hmm. kind of be like, oh, Weber, or Protestant work ethic. But, like, it really is, you know, the, the idea of, like, the creation of, well, not creation, but, like, the establishment of a right to rebellion by, like, John Knox here mm-hmm. in Scotland. This idea that, like, you have a right to rebel against um, a, a state. And not only, like, do you mm-hmm. have that right, it is, a, like, a whole, like, a divinely ordained right to do so. Or, like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the idea that the radical, uh, at least to Western Europe, idea of splitting from the mother church. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, so much of the modern world is crafted um, either in the shadow or in the light, depending on who you ask, uh, uh, of the, the Protestant <laughs> Reformation. Um, and and Tolkien's world doesn't have a Reformation. Um, there is a fall. Mm-hmm. There's there are many falls, um, but there's not really a Reformation as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, it's not quite godless. But he's just trying to imagine mm-hmm. what. Um, what this kind of pathway for history would be like if there weren't this engine of modernity that is the Protestant Mm -hmm. Reformations. And I think the interesting thing about this, uh, and here I think maybe we get a little bit back into into the history, is there is, I think, as I can think of, exactly one exception in the legendarium and that mostly exists in negation being the the temple of the one on on Numenor oh of course um, uh and that exists almost literally entirely to be to be negated to be perverted um and it's but it's the only time that uh that religious expression is ever i mean 
positive religious expression is ever uh, described in sort of organized or orthodox terms. I, I suppose orthodox here very meaningfully, uh, given that I, I do feel that the Byzantines were a big inspiration for Numenor yes. in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, the the it it almost I think might come back to as you say. Um, Tolkien's project being basically uh, anti-modern, which is necessarily anti-Reformation. Um, sorry to any Protestant reactionaries <laughs> listening. Um, uh, it's our entire listener base. What are you uh, talking about? Um, but there is this kind of view of religion being sort of far from mind. Organized religion being almost like a state apparatus that it is best when it is out of sight, out of mind. It's just a religion is just what you do. You act right. And you don't have to think about it very hard. You get it from your parents kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we see, I think it's interesting to look at where the hobbits in the books interact with the elves mentioning the Valar. Like mm-hmm. um, uh, when Frodo cries out to Elbereth or sings uh, Elbereth Gilthoniel, um, these these things are all, I, I mean, maybe with the exception of Frodo, they're never explicitly, they're mostly done by rote. There's not a lot of actual... The, the hobbits never really interrogate what any of it means. Um, mm. They're kind of just words they say. Well, so um, Sam is interesting in this because Sam spontaneously writes a, a verse of uh, Elbreth Gilthoniel. And I guess like there's kind whoa. of a, like a Sam is, a, is a, uh, this is going to be my insane take for the thing, but Sam uh-huh. is like a, is the Protestant re- revivalist of, of all of this. He is uh-huh. the one who is, you know, not quite speaking in tongues, but actually kind of speaking in tongues because mm-hmm. Sindarin certainly is not his mother tongue. And, <laughs> And, you know, that's he is the one organic one and probably intimately uh-huh. connected to him being the layperson of, of all of it in mm-hmm. front of being a fucking useless aristocrat. Uh-huh. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about that. That's so... Oh. And then we get into the connection between song and religion in Tolkien. This is... We'll go on for another hour and a half if you let us. <laughs> well, so this is like, I think, one of the... Cause Okay, so history shows up a lot in in, mm-hmm. in these books, um, and in you know the Silmarillion and in the Lord of the Rings, um, and and history shows up in so many different ways. You know whether it's mm-hmm. these kind of like you know high handed off uh, or high high hearted sort of offhand references, um, as mm-hmm. we see with so many of the men of, of Gondor and of the elves, but also mm-hmm. with the elves and with Sam and and the Hobbit, mm-hmm. um. It is history transmitted through 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 song, um, uh-huh. and I want to be really careful about how I say this because I don't want to get into like the question of like bulk. Um, but but there is like a very clear kind of bulk culture and folk history that is going on. Ah, folk, in, yes, yes, folk. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to stay away from the V uh, uh-huh. variant uh-huh. of that. Um, although I think there is probably an interesting conversation to be had, but uh, at a different time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is a very clear kind of folk history of mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. And 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 the Lord of the Rings, um, and to a lesser extent, The Hobbit, and a much lesser extent, mm-hmm. um, The Silmarillion, represent a kind mm-hmm. of 
attempt of Tolkien to speak to more people than just his sort of Inklings Oxford set mm -hmm. as he's trying to like, whether consciously or not, push these kind of historical arguments. Mm -hmm. And and I guess, uh, you know, uh, the kind of question to throw out here is like, how does that kind of lay approach mm -hmm. to history just impact on this overall alleged accidental mm -hmm. incidental theory of history that that Tolkien's got got going in this. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the the songs are I are actually kind of central to this, right? Like the um the transmission of of history through song I would argue in Tolkien extends even beyond kind of its lay function um in that they're one of the few examples where Tolkien engages in what we might call historiography, um, the because they are explicitly almost always songs regarding memory. Um, the I think the most significant example of this comes also from the Silmarillion and is also just one of the best songs Tolkien writes, which is uh, from Feligan's Battle Against yes. Sauron. Um, which is this this beautiful uh, kind of a chant, I suppose, that doesn't technically explicitly change perspective. It's not itself the song that they are singing. It's it's a song about singing a song, essentially, which is maybe the most <laughs> Tolkien it gets. But uh, it 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 sort of implicitly switches perspective between Felagund and Sauron um, about the the nature of hope and history and it ends on a depressing Sauron wins the rap battle uh, <laughs> when he brings up the memory of the king slang kin slang king slang Manu you got me um, kin slang <laughs> um, yes uh, and th this kind of is I think one of the closer times Tolkien gets to engaging with the question of to, to bring it back around to th what you said in the beginning, the question of what we write and what we remember. Um, I mean, really, I guess that we could extend that to the entire um, sort of cover operation, the Noldor run briefly regarding the kinslaying in Beleriand. Um, uh, and it's, it's fascinating because, I mean, again, I don't want to get too allegorical but we can read in this uh i think a bit of of weakness in tolkien's historical mindset where mm -hmm. there is this element of guilt um and uh, christianity largely <laughs> a religion that is very uh very <laughs> very fond of guilt but um the 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 kind of Kinslaying as not only as mythical fall, not only as the fall in the garden, but more present and at least through the Silmarillion, uh, less so afterwards, except for where Galadriel is concerned. Um, the as this kind of uh, to, to bring it back to the colonial context, this much more 1492 moment, this mm -hmm. kind of black mark on history, which is the thing by its starkness must define all events which follow. Um, and there's an element of that which 
engages more. I, I, I don't ever want to be accused of construing Tolkien in a progressive light, certainly. <laughs> Welcome but I to think my there struggle. Is, um, there is an element of uh, maybe some some genuine uh, so some of the genuine contradictions in his own ideology breaking through there. I think, yeah, where he 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 can't. There are these things which he cannot. Uh, rectify and every once in a while they shine through in these moments of genuine beauty of beauty is maybe the wrong word but I, I think a very human beauty of that even having this very stark very um, <laughs> conservative or reactionary depending on the day um <laughs> ideology towards history there is still this wrestling with it in a in a way that he he thinks about it i think mm -hmm. he, this is why going back earlier to what we said about how much benefit of the doubt do we give him i think there are moments where he does show that these are things he considers even if he doesn't explicitly address them anywhere that i am aware of yeah yeah, and I think uh, the oh God. This is one of these other things where when when you open the door, it's hard to shut. But but mm -hmm. we'll kind of have to to speed run it, I guess, <laughs> because like it is this question of you know. Uh, so okay, so we'll we'll have to get into this here because this is one mm -hmm. another one of my hobby horses. But you know, um, Tolkien's attempts, um, aborted almost semi-aborted attempts at um creating an English mythos, I think, um, are mm -hmm. distinct from from Britishness, right? And so like in mm -hmm. in a very sort of speed run version of this, like Britishness is. An identity that is well, or maybe not an identity that is linked to the British state. <laughs> the British state is the amalgamation of England, Scotland, Wales, and the Northern Ireland, um, variously in 1707 and then 1800. Um, and Britishness is intimately connected to a couple things. One, which is Protestantism. Protestantism is the the thing that binds all of these things together. It is also mm -hmm. um, the most explicit other that that the Brits formulated themselves against. So, like first through the subjugation of of uh, of of Ireland uh, then through the 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 seven years war and the hundred years war with the French mm -hmm. um, and also through the Highlands clearances the the, the sort mm -hmm. of uh, destruction of the Gale Tact and 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 Scotland and then just general weirdness towards Catholics everywhere else so so there's mm -hmm. the this sort of Britishness as Protestantism and then also necessarily Britishness as, as modernity and Britain is London mm -hmm. and Britain is the Industrial Revolution and the rise of financial capitalism and then a hundred and some years later it's the Beatles and then it's the Spice Girls and Oasis <laughs> and like Britishness and modernity and Protestantism these all go hand mm -hmm. in hand but if there's one thing that or if there are three things that Tolkien is not it is um, modern Protestant um, and British um, he is mm -hmm. conservative English and, and Catholic and so as he's building mm -hmm. this like or trying to build and then stopping building um, this English mm -hmm. myth he's, he's trying to do a history of England in some ways mm -hmm. or a potential history of England that sits in opposition to to Britishness, um, mm -hmm. and and it is one of these, um, you know, especially in light, I think of um, of of the movies to 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 mm -hmm. bring those back in again, where like the movies are this almost attempted history of um, the nineteen nineties. Um, and as much as they're like kind of Ooh. influenced by the ramp up to 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 the Iraq War, they're also like uh -huh. way more influenced by the fall of the Soviet Union, the, the mm -hmm. end of the Cold War, the rise of the American Empire, and the the, the sort mm -hmm. of unipolar state, and an attempt from like 
a group of people who are literally as far on the periphery of this as you could possibly be um, without mm -hmm. not being white. Um, like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the Kiwis are not exactly um, party to the real decisions of, of the world. Um, and yet they have these, mm -hmm. these legacies of colonialism. They have whiteness mm -hmm. um, and, and, and Christianity as a part of them, but they're not really kind of um, allowed mm -hmm. to sit at the, the, the adults table. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Peter Jackson and co seem to be sort of viscerally struggling with how to mm -hmm. represent themselves and, 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 and the world as it is, um, you know, where we've ostensibly, um, won over the communists mm -hmm. and, and we've done all of these things that are good and we have so much better, so many better things to do. Um, and, mm -hmm. and that is so interesting in comparison to, to Tolkien, who's having to kind of, be like, oh fuck, I'm on the losing side. Um, and uh -huh. how do I reconcile this being on the losing mm -hmm. side with knowing that like England, which is this constituent part of, of Britain and which is such a core part of the British history. Um, mm -hmm. how do I reconcile all of these things at once? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, I mean, I, 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 I hesitate to speak anything on, on, the intricacies of English versus British history, um, because I don't know very much about it. Uh, Not worth but, knowing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more familiar with uh, with the Scottish Highlands, but that I don't think Tolkien was very concerned with. Um, the yeah, the the kind of how to define an identity, even even after Tolkien sort of aborted the project, I think that very much. I would say very strongly that the the project continued even when he wasn't consciously thinking about it. They the books are very much tied up with Englishness because they're tied up with fantasy, because they're tied up with the medieval world, because that is tied up with in the English imagination, Anglosphere imagination with Englishness. Um, I mean, there's a reason that uh, Elijah Wood and Sean Austin were, you know speaking in these, what to me, I assumed were just what every British person sounded like, accents. <laughs> um, and that, I think, is is a very real question of, of what, um, to what extent you can resuscitate this idea of Englishness, which has been so thoroughly consumed by its... Um, uh, However you want to describe the relationship between England and the United Kingdom, uh, it's rump empire at this point mm. um, that doesn't translate, as you point out rightly, doesn't translate to the movies. And the movies are maybe, if I, if I wanted to be, I guess, a little bit um, bold, are much more kind of concerned with finding one's position in empire finding one's position on the winning team as as mm. you put it um you know the the hobbits are not the little guy because they're losing so much as they're the little guy because they're not they're not at the big boy table they're not um you know uh they're they're not in nato high command they are <laughs> um they're the kiwis they're uh peripheral to to God, I don't want to. I don't want to feed into your Emily uh, denigration of Aragorn by saying this. Um, but you know, in 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 the movies, it's a uh, Aragorn is the Anglo Empire, um, and this is. I mean, 
Oh, what's the book called? I wish, I haven't read it. I don't know if there's an English translation of it, but the old late Soviet um, book written about the Lord of the Rings from Mordor's perspective. Oh, uh, the um, the oh, fuck, oh we've the talked about this before, ring but yeah, bear shit. Uh, hang on, uh, I got it somewhere. It's on my shelf. Mm-hmm. But you know, this predates. I believe it's late Soviet. It might have been yep. early Russian. Um, the last ring bearer. Last ring bearer. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of connection between uh, English identity and British identity and this sort of Anglosphere identity is very much th- – it's not only an in- invention of Jackson. I think there is something there. Tolkien – I think there is a more fraught relationship there um, than simply one of negation. Um that I don't know quite enough to speak on definitively in the begin in the transition from the English to the British stage, but I think there is a very clear case of translatio imperii from the Lord of the Rings being about the British Empire to the Lord of the Rings being about the American Empire as NATO. Um, in that that's kind of made clear by this turning its up. Tur- Turning it on its head uh, from from the Mordor perspective. I mean, I mean, hell, the the uh, use of orcs today in the um, uh, context of the Ukraine war is like right there is an example of you know West versus East ideology, um, the racism in the Lord of the Rings, all of that. It's mm-hmm. This is very much this is very much an issue which is bound up in, um, in the books. I think the books' reception and the movies' reception for as long as they've existed. Yes. Yeah. 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 It, it's what oh, mm-hmm. it's. There's so much. There's so much. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's this. so much to be said here. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But we are not only butting up against time, but I can smell my dinner in the kitchen right now. Yeah. I'm so blessed. So, mm-hmm. um, well, um, well, I'm sorry to have left us on that note. No. So I will give you a chance. I'll give you a chance mm-hmm. to do some revision. Do you have okay. any burning thoughts um, uh-huh. about this to to get out to express into the world before we mm-hmm. skedaddle? Hmm. Um. I. I feel that there is so much more about this to be said, and none of it have I got thoroughly clarified. There is actually I haven't read this yet, so I won't endorse it. But about half an hour before we started recording, I found a 300-page dissertation from uh, Western Australia, I believe, uh, about historiography in yes. Tolkien. Yeah. Um, uh, it's called a Historiogra- His- Historiographical Study of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun by Caroline Finander. And I haven't read it yet, but um, as far as – for anyone interested more in this topic – I imagine that would be a good place to dig in. One last thing I will leave, uh, because I should have mentioned this earlier when I was talking about linguistics, uh, and I think it's it's a little bit of a departure, so you'll have to bear with me. But um, a few weeks ago, I was reading about uh, something in linguistics called uh, morphological reanalysis, which is where we like change where the boundaries of words 
uh, lie. And in the Lord of the Rings, in in the Fellowship, uh, I just read reread through this part the other day. Sam sings a song about uh, his about the the singer's nuncle Tim and a <laughs> troll. Um, and I had wondered, and it's spelled N U N C L E. And mm-hmm. I'd wondered for years why it's spelled that way. And it turns out the word uncle was originally nuncle. And because people said a nuncle and heard an uncle, <laughs> it became uncle. Um, and that's just, I, I just think that's cute. I think that's sweet. And I like that Tolkien included that. Um, <laughs> what yeah, a guy thank you for explaining that. that that is all over a song of ice and fire um asha Greyjoy calls her uncle's nuncle the entire time whoa um, and i i i had no idea what that meant i thought maybe that means uncle on like your father's side or something mm-hmm. um i mm-hmm. mean i could have googled it i clearly did was not that interested in what it meant but it's just like oh my god yes this is awesome uh-huh. thank you i've, I've this, learned one thing over the last two hours this is also where we get uh ned and nelly from edward and eleanor because mine ed and mine oh Ellie my god become my ned and my nelly now let's do dick from richard figure that one out <laughs> yeah that one i think i i will as i've uh become accustomed to since moving here blame the british and move on yep yep um, they're all yeah, great. Yeah. i'm from india yes <laughs> let's, uh, let's fucking go <laughs> that's the very next one <laughs> Awesome. Cool. Well, on that much cheerier note, then uh, I think we could go ahead and, and wrap this up. Manu, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, not really. I would love to do a part two on this because um, I didn't get to like sh- like shit out the last four months of history I've been reading and podcasting to. Um, it's been not podcasting to, I've been listening to podcasts about history. Um, but it just like, I have so many loose connections and like ideas that I'm first really starting to grapple with in terms of both what the actual history of our world is, but also how it's been told. And maybe more specifically to me, how it's been taught in the United States. Um, because, uh, my in real life, uh, cadre of friends tend to just be more rank and file Democrat liberal sorts. Um, and I really want to engender an interest in history to them um, because I think that can be a vehicle of radicalization. But I have zero idea how to communicate that to them without signing, sounding like a psycho and telling them that like the FBI mailed suicide letters to MLK and expecting them to just take it in stride and become a good <laughs> communist after that. Um, I have no idea how to make any of that work, but I would love to like actually try to do this again. And hopefully I'll have a couple better formed thoughts when we do so. Well, if we would love to have you back and maybe we'll even spring some Kennedy CIA uh, conspiracies oh, for the absolutely. Tolkien's legendarium. <laughs> oh, I would love that. Uh, the <laughs> the Akalabath was an inside job. I'm, I'm down 100%. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll get that one prepped and ready for Jeff Bezos to chew on uh, come season two of the show that shall not be named. Oh, oh. <laughs> All right. Well, um, well, thank you so much. This is something we've been waiting for for so long, and I'm so happy that we've um, finally gotten to do this. Um, is there anything um, you want to uh, like, is there anything you want to promote, share anything like that you want to pop out to um, the crowd? Uh, well, I first of all, thank you for having me. This was a blast and I would be happy to come back on anytime. Yeah. I don't really have anything to promote. So I guess um, 
I don't know, love your uncles. <laughs> Brilliant. And on those wise words, um, I think we can head off. Do I have to? Do I have to add a little closing here, Manu, or or can we uh, do a horrible cut to black on this? Uh, you don't actually have to do it, but I kind of want to make you try. All right. Okay. <laughs> Let's see how much of I can do. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. You can, you're already supporting us on Patreon, so you don't have to give us any more money, but you could give us more money. Who knows? That's up to you. Um, thank you for supporting. I cannot remember any of your Middle Earth names off of the top of my head, except for Vin Hatola, which is New Jersey and Quenya, which lives in my heart forever. So Elise, there you go. You got your shout out on that one. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, I've been Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweedin, which is where you can find me on Twitter, mailing suicide letters to Aragorn. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find my coverage of A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I'm Wilf, and remember, history isn't even dead. No, fuck, I fucked it up. <laughs> history isn't dead, it's not even past. There we go, good night. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs>